Good morning. Good morning to you at home. Uh, let's pray to God. Father, we do thank you for your word. And I pray, God, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock, our rock, and our redeemer. Amen. Well, imagine for a moment uh, that you are living in ancient Egypt. Imagine that you are an ethnic Jew. Uh, You and your people have been living there in ancient Egypt for centuries. However, it is not your home. You and your family, you work at a brick factory. You wake up and go there every day. Uh, Day after day, you go there, and the Egyptians that are there overseeing you, they despise you, they ridicule you, and you long for days of rest. You want your own place in your true home of Israel, although you've never actually been there. But you've heard about it time and again from your fathers who told your father, from his fathers who told him, and on down the line. You want to be back home in Israel. And so as you're there and all these things are happening, uh, things have begun to change. Moses, a Jew himself, uh, having been raised by the Egyptian elite, he and his brother Aaron have been pleading with Pharaoh to release you and your people, the rest of the Israelites, to go back to their native land. Pharaoh, though, had refused. And the Lord had sinned plague after plague. You've been hearing about it all week. You've seen these things happen. All these plagues were coming until tonight. And there you are at home, in your alien home, as it were, in Egypt. You've been told about specific instructions on this last plague that's going to occur tonight. You were told by Moses to sacrifice an unblemished male lamb, one-year-old. And you were to take the blood of that lamb and wipe it on the lintel and on the doorposts of your home. You then were told to eat, you were to roast that lamb and eat all of it. You and your family to eat all of it. And you were to eat that along with bitter herbs and unleavened bread because you were told you're going to leave quickly that night. An angel of death was going to pass over all of Egypt and he was going to kill the firstborn of the Egyptian people as well as the firstborn animals, as judgment for their wickedness. But the blood of the lamb was going to save your oldest daughter, Dina. So you apply the blood. You roast the lamb, you eat, but none of you can sleep. The excitement is palatable. Sometime after midnight, you begin to hear shrieks from the Egyptian side of the city, sounds of terror. And they begin to make their way to you in your corner of the city. And you begin to hear cries in your own neighborhood when people around you say, it's time, Pharaoh has released us. And you walk out of your door and there you see Moses standing in the moonlight, waving you on, saying, let's go, it's time to go. And as you leave, you, you, your wife, your family, you leave with great joy and excitement because now you're leaving Egypt, you're leaving slavery, you're finally going to go home. Soon enough you'll be, and the rest of you will be in Canaan. And you begin to say to yourself as you're walking away from your old town, you begin to say, God has heard our cries. He has been faithful to his covenant, Abraham. 
He is delivering you. You are reminding yourself and others. He's reminding you that you're now going out of slavery and into the land of promise. You whisper these good things to your wife as you walk out. And as you're walking out, as you're making away from uh, making yourself away from Egypt, you look down and you look and see the blood on your clothes and on your hands. And you look up to the sky and say, our people will never forget this night. And of course they wouldn't. Even if they wanted to, they could not uh, not remember that night because God had commanded for all time that his people keep that same Passover meal that they ate. They were supposed to keep it annually every single year for the rest of their lives. As a way to remember God's deliverance. As a way to remember God's faithfulness so that they would then trust him going forward. And it was on that faithful night That fateful night when God's people were then set apart from Egypt and they became a people. That Passover and the Passover meal was the birth of their nation. By the blood of an unblemished male lamb, they were delivered from slavery and into the promised land. And every single year after that night, there was a celebration to remind themselves of the Lord's faithfulness to deliver them as he said he would. All the while, though, as you celebrated that Passover meal, you were also told there was one that was greater than Moses that was going to come and deliver you to a greater salvation. You were told to look for him. Fast forward now, centuries later, to early first century Jerusalem. There you are now. God's people have been in God's place for centuries. And now, that that first Passover meal, that night that we were just rehearsing, that night was rehearsing these days. Here in Jerusalem. Tomorrow we might imagine. In this final week of Christ's life. Tomorrow is the day in which you will eat the Passover meal. It's now Wednesday evening. Of what has already been an eventful week. Jesus arrived in Jerusalem just a couple days ago. With great fanfare. Having taught for three years about the kingdom of God. He's driven out the robbers from the temple. He's remained there. He's teaching. Just yesterday, he warned on Tuesday, he warned all who had ears to hear of this coming judgment upon Jerusalem and upon the temple. And he taught how the age of the Gentiles would then break in. But on this Wednesday, things have been relatively quiet until that evening. On the Jewish calendar, Wednesday evening now becomes Thursday. And in verses 7 to 13, we see Jesus sends Peter and John into the city to prepare the meal to sacrifice. Look at verse uh, 7 there. Sacrifice the Passover lamb. That should heighten our awareness. We're meant to hear the irony by Luke since Jesus has told the disciples and Luke has told us time and again he's going to sacrifice himself. Jesus knows what's happening. It's not lost on him, although it does seem to be lost on the disciples. But off Peter and John go to make preparations and they find things exactly as Jesus told them there in verse 13. Jesus' words were true. And what Luke means to tell us is that Jesus was a prophet. He was, he was something more than a prophet, but he was not less than a prophet. His words were true. We go on to read in verse 22 that Jesus, who is the Son of Man, is going as it was determined, as it was prophesied of him Hundreds of years before. 
According to Zechariah chapter 11, the Lord Jesus would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. The one who betrayed him, we learn in verse 3, was none other than Judas Iscariot. Sold for 30 pieces of silver. One of Jesus' disciples that had been with him now for three years. In verse 2, we read that the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put Jesus to death. And no surprise, this is no surprise that they wanted to put him to death because Jesus has been publicly condemning them time and again during his entire ministry. Because, first off, Jesus didn't fit their unbiblical rules. And then secondly, he was stealing their glory since he, Jesus, was teaching as one with authority. Now the throngs of the people were beginning to follow Jesus because they believed him to be a prophet. And so the scribes and the Pharisees wanted to kill him to get him out of the way. But they realized that they couldn't do it in public because of the people who were following him. They, it says, feared the people. You should underline that. They feared the people. We learn in verse 3 that Satan enters into Judas Iscariot. And notice, friends, well, actually, we should recognize that Satan enters into Judas under the authority of God. Do not lose sight of that. Satan believes himself to be winning in these moments, but of course he is not. Even now, especially now, God is working all things together for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose. And that includes, friends, the sacrifice of the true and forever Passover lamb, his only begotten son, Jesus the Christ. Judas goes to the chief priests and the scribes. They gladly come to a deal to betray Jesus in order to finally bring Jesus to an end. At least though they thought. And though Jesus was possessed by Satan, we do find that he still consented to the deal. And as Jesus says in verse 22, he, Judas, will be held responsible for his actions. Judas doesn't know it now, but Judas will come to regret all of this, as does everyone. That betrays Jesus. But the trap has been set. On this fateful Passover's Eve. Jesus has been telling us for weeks now. That he was going to be handed over by his people. That he was going to be sacrificed. Now we know how. As to who was going to bring it about. In this betrayal. And one note of application. As we think about betraying. When you follow the path of Judas friends. You see a very discernible trend. It's right there in the words of Luke. Look at verse 4. After being possessed by Satan, Judas went away. Went away from who? Went away from Jesus and from Jesus' people. That's what happens to lost people. They go away from Jesus and away from Jesus' people. And why do they go away from Jesus and his people? Well, in order to betray Jesus. For what end? To bring about the destruction of Jesus and his ministry. At least that's what they try to do. And realizing, friends, most people that do this, they do not consciously know that that's what they're doing. But that's what's functionally happening. This is the exact same plot line that the evil one has for every single person on planet earth. That includes you and that includes me. This is his plan. Get you away from Jesus. Get you away from Jesus' people so as to betray him, so as to try to destroy him and his kingdom. 
We might be a more sophisticated society and we, th- we think we've sort of graduated beyond these things, right? Satan is now what we saw yesterday, people dressing up. It's just sort of a foolish little thing. But the reality is Jesus believed in Satan. Christians believed in Satan. We know the reality of Satan. We just tried to push it away. Satan, friends, though, his ploys, he, he's a one-trick pony. He fights the same way. He is powerful. He is deceptive. But ultimately, his plans, friends, are predictable. Get people away from Jesus. Get people away from Jesus' people in order to betray Jesus and try and bring Jesus and his people down. Friends, he cannot win the war, and he knows that, but he wins a lot of battles in the souls of men every day. And how is it he does this? How is it he betrays them? What's the bait? It's right there. Look at verse 2 and verse 5. He uses the fear of man and the love of money. The scribes and the Pharisees feared the people. They, they needed the love of the people, the affirmation of people. That's where they got their sense of identity. And so for them, when man is big, God is small. And when that happens, you do what you can to push God out of the way. Maybe even in the name of God. So as to promote self. So as to promote your agenda. And in this way, you walk away from Jesus and his people and betray him. Friends, that's what's behind these words we hear these days so often when people say that we're on the wrong side of history or old-fashioned. They're using what they assume is, they're playing upon our fear of man so as to try to get us and bully us into the will of the people. It's society bullying us into betraying Jesus. The other way Satan excels at betrayal is by, again, using the elixir of money. 30 pieces of silver. That's how much Jesus was worth to Judas. 30 pieces of silver. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? Well, we look at the life of Judas and we learn that it profits nothing. And yet the throngs believe that fame and fortune are the way to the good life. And the throngs die from it every single day. They betray Jesus and Jesus' people, and in the end, they find out that they are the ones that were betrayed all along. Beloved, do not be fools. Do not go away from Jesus and his people. Do not betray Jesus by fearing man and loving money. Fear God more than man. Find wealth in him and in his people. Come near to Jesus and stay with him by staying with his people. And then you will know what true greatness actually is. We see that in this Passover meal. Take a look at what comes next. The meal has been prepared. The fix is on. It's now Thursday evening, or as they would have known it, Friday. This is the day that Christ will be crucified. We read in verse 14 that the hour came, meaning the hour of our redemption was about to come. As it broke in on that Passover's night in Egypt so many years ago, a greater redemption was about to be accomplished. Jesus said to the disciples, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover meal with you before I suffer. Before I suffer. Which means Jesus knows what's coming. Once again, we see who's in control. Jesus is. Satan Judas, the scribes, the Pharisees, they may think that they are in control, but the king of kings, friends, is in control. He has come for this hour. 
But we need to ask the question, why did Jesus earnestly desire to eat this Passover meal? He's eaten other Passover meals with him. Why does he earnestly desire to eat this Passover meal? Well, he tells us it's because he won't eat it again until it, that is, that greater Passover meal, until our full redemption is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Jesus here, friends, is looking forward to the day when he will eat the meal with his disciples and the rest of his disciples in the restoration of all things in the new heaven and new earth. Jesus earnestly desires to have this meal because he knows, friends, that he is about to take the lid off of the Passover meal that has been celebrated for centuries and explain how it pointed to him all along. This is the moment. He was about to show them and he was about to show us how that night in Egypt was pointing forward to this night in Jerusalem. For all people in all time. It's interesting, isn't it, that we heard about the Passover meal being sacrificed and that was such a central part of the meal. Isn't it interesting that we don't learn anything else of the lamb on the table? Could that be? Because as Paul will write in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Because Jesus is the Passover lamb and he is seated at the table. Regardless, Jesus goes on to highlight two parts of that Passover meal. The bread and the wine. And he uses that to move the Passover meal, friends. Listen, this is important. He uses that to move the Passover meal out of the old covenant and into the new covenant. Notice the words. Don't miss these, beloved. Read them slowly. He took the bread. He gave thanks. He broke the bread. He gave it to them. Saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He then took the cup, saying, the cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now you ask, what does all of this mean exactly? Well, first, remember, you have to remember that first Passover meal. Remember, Israel became a distinct people when they came out of Egypt and eventually went into the land of promise when they received the law and got into that land. They became that distinct people. On that night, that Passover meal was indicating or initiating all of this into place when they would become God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. All of that was beginning in that Passover meal. And so this was purchased for them. Remember, how was that purchased? How were they becoming a distinct people on that Passover night? By the blood of a male unblemished lamb. And so now, Jesus was using that meal to signal a new meal as a celebration of the new covenant. Which would do as that previous meal did. Create a distinct and a holy people set apart from the rest of the world. How? By the blood of an unblemished male lamb. By the true and greater lamb, Christ the Lord. Jeremiah chapter 31 promised this new covenant made without hands and sealed by the blood. He promised this. Hundreds of years before. Jesus was saying here, friends, that the Passover meal pointed to this new covenant meal, which we now call the Lord's Supper. This meal is now celebrated by God's new covenant people since it points to our day of redemption. Since it reminds us of our day of deliverance, our future restoration 
when we get out of the wilderness and we get home to heaven. The Lord's Supper, friends, don't lose sight of this. If you get, if you, if you, if you need one line to think about this whole morning, remember this. The Lord's Supper is a retelling of the gospel. How we became a people. It's a retelling. It's a reorienting to what has been done and what will be done for those of us in Christ Jesus. So looking at the bread again, Jesus says the bread is his body. He broke it. His body is the bread. And Jesus uses this language often, right? He says, I am the vine. I am the door. He's using the bread as a signpost. It's a sign. It's meant to point to something, point to a reality. The bread was pointing to the reality of the body of Christ Jesus. Jesus, beloved, gave his body up on the cross for you. For you. He broke his body, think about this, and he gave it to you. God made us body and soul, friends, and he said in creation that it was good. Therefore, in order for the fullness of redemption to come, Jesus needed not only to redeem our spirits, but our bodies. That meant that he would need to come in the body and offer his body as a ransom for our bodies. And that's what Jesus does when he suffers on the cross. He's offering his body as a sacrifice and he gives his body to you, beloved. I've been meditating on those words all week. Given to you. I'm imagining him just holding it out. Given for you. His body is meant to be a sacrifice like that lamb was a sacrifice at the Passover. Its death meant their life in the old covenant. So does in the new covenant. So does Jesus' death mean our life. And then the cup. The cup held the wine, which was, Jesus said, poured out for you. It's the new covenant in my blood. What's going on with the blood? Hebrews 9.22 helps us. By telling us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The old covenant had revealed two very things very clearly. First, the old covenant had revealed that God was faithful. The old covenant also revealed that no matter how many privileges Israel had, laws, lands, priests, all these things, none of it was good enough to make them holy. No matter how many times they would try, they would get it wrong. The Lord would rebuke them. And they're like, all right, we'll get it right this time. They still couldn't get it right. And what we learn then in the old covenant is that not only will our own blood not make us right with God, our own good works not make us right with God, but also we learn that it's not the blood of bulls and goats that can make us right with God. We need blood and it can't be us, nor can it be the sacrifice of blood of the blood and bulls of goats. So what is it? What can make us right? What blood can we offer in order to be made right with God? The blood of the only begotten son, Jesus the Christ. And he's now saying, here it is. My blood poured out for you. Notice that language of substitution. And so Jesus' blood does two things. This is so important. Jesus' blood does two things. This is why Jesus is highlighting things. Just as it did in Egypt... Jesus' blood propitiates 
or quenches the wrath or the anger of God against our sin. It propitiates. Remember that covering the angel of death goes over and it quenches. So does Jesus' blood quench God's wrath, God's anger against our sin, which is deserved. And his perfect blood also, secondly, serves as the price of our redemption. Redemption means to buy back. Jesus' body and blood quenches the anger of God against our sin. It purchases our redemption. It purchases our freedom because his is the only blood that is perfect. And so for those who repent of sin and wholly lean on Jesus' death at the cross for their salvation, they, that is we, are delivered from the angel of death. And we are now left to flee Egypt. We are now left to flee our slavery to ourselves and we can now go to a new and a better Jerusalem. We can make our way there because of a new and a better covenant which was sealed by the body and the blood of Christ. Jesus was and is our Passover lamb. He took our place on the cross to satisfy our penalty for our sins so that we can be brought out of our slavery and into the land of promise. And not only that, there's more. Because of this, we who believe on Christ, we are also justified because of his blood. Justified, counted just, counted innocent, counted righteous. Because Jesus' righteousness gets accounted to us by faith. That's what Jesus says, isn't it? Isn't that what he says? Given for you. His body given for you. His blood poured out for you. This is amazing. He takes our guilt and we take his glory though we deserve none of it. It's all by grace. He takes our punishment on the cross and we take his righteousness by faith. Isaiah prophesied this hundreds of years before. He, Jesus, has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, not us, upon him was the punishment that brought us peace by His wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep, all we like sheep have gone astray. Every one of us. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord laid not on us, on him, the iniquity of us all. Justified, counted righteous because of his substitution. And then finally, this moment, this rehearsal of his body and blood reminds us of the greatest news of all. Our adoption. (laughs) We got a place at the table, y'all. And not only do we have a place at the table, we are counted sons and daughters. And God knows us by name. We got a place reserved for us at that table. And we are in his family. He didn't just justify us and send us away. He propitiated, he redeemed, he justified because he wanted us home with him. Sinners. And the Lord's Supper is a rehearsal of all of this and more. It's a rehearsal of our story. His story that we get to be part of. It tells of our propitiation, our redemption, our justification, our adoption in Christ Jesus. But who's it for? Who's this meal for? We've already rehearsed that, but we need to take a look at it again. You can see it in Jesus' words. It's for you. Who's the you? Well, that's the disciples. 
Those that, as he says in verse 28, those that trust him by staying with him. Just as the Passover meal was for the Israelites and those that chose to attach themselves to the God of Israelites. So the Lord's Supper is for those that are repenting of their sin and trusting in Christ alone to save them from their sins and bring them to God. It's a new covenant meal for new covenant people. So I've always said that if you want to understand the atonement, understand the Passover. But we can also say something else as to who the Lord's Supper is for. Since this meal is a sign of the new covenant, we can also say that this meal is for those that have first taken the initiatory sign of the covenant. That is baptism, what Henry will do today. If Jesus doesn't come back first, wouldn't that be great? (laughs) In Exodus chapter 12, verse 48, think about this, guys. I know this is not always popularly received, but this is true. It's what Christians have believed for the better part of 2,000 years. In Exodus 12, 48, we see so clearly that every male had to take the initiatory sign of the new old covenant before they then took the Passover meal. Which is to say they had to be circumcised before they could then take the Passover meal. So too, Christians do as Henry will do this morning. Go public with their faith in Christ. And then come to the table. Just like marriage has a wedding ceremony. And then you do the things that Mary do after that ceremony. We see this practice in the book of Acts chapter 2. Where new believers, they hear the gospel. What must we do to be saved? Repent and what? Be baptized. And then we see at the end of Acts chapter 2. It says that they are added to the membership of the church. And then to the table of fellowship. Again, this is what churches have believed and practiced for 2,000 years. So the meal is for Christians that are repenting and believing, that have been baptized, and then have already gone public to their faith. Then they come to the table of fellowship. But where, where should this new covenant meal occur? Well, the answer is inside the gathering of the new covenant people, which is the church. The meal should occur inside the church. And the church, of course, means assembly. That's what the word church means. It's an assembly. This morning is, though I'm thankful for it, disappointing in the sense that it's not the assembly. We have to leave people out. Just like your community group leaves people out. And so towards that end, that's lamentably why we're not taking the Lord's Supper this morning. Because the New Covenant meal is for the church. And this is only part of the church. This is not the assembly of all of the church. So just as the Passover meal was not an individual meal, but an expression of one's identity with the people of God, the assembly of God, so it is with baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those in Christ are not only personally united with Christ, they are, hallelujah, but all the more they are united to Christ and to one another. We are united together. That's why we have that covenant They're in making the gathering of God's people under the preaching of God's gospel the natural place to identify oneself as being marked off from the world in those two ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. The church is given the stewardship of those two ordinances so as to mark people off just like Israel marked people off. The local church is the vessel Jesus is using to build his kingdom. Matthew 6, 18, 16, 18. Israel, you could say, where's God's people? You would say they're in Israel, practicing the law in this way. Where's the new covenant people? In the local church. 
The people that have been baptized and are taking the Lord's Supper. There they are. And assembling under the gospel. Each week. Therefore the signs of the kingdom. Are naturally expressed in the gathering of the church. Which leads me to the next thing that we need to consider regarding this meal. How do we celebrate it? How do we celebrate it? Well, when we gather to celebrate and remember this gospel. We look in five directions. Every time we take this meal, beloved, in faith, our souls are nourished by looking in, in faith in five directions. First, where do we look? We look back. We look back to the cross. And there we are reminded the depth of our sin by beholding the cost of our redemption. Our sin demanded Jesus. There on the cross, we see where love and mercy meet. There on the cross, we see the death of our death. There on the cross, we see Christ gave us himself as he lays down his body and pours out his blood so that we might be his. In faith, we look back to the cross and are reminded of who we are. We are dead to sin, alive to God through the free and finished work of Jesus Christ. We come in faith to the table by looking back. And as we look back at the cross, we also look secondly up to the Father. You remember, what did Jesus do at the beginning? He gave thanks to God. He looked up. As we come to the table in faith, we look back at the cross and we look, we look up to see what our heavenly father is like. What is he like? Well, he is like this. He sends his only son so as to bring you and I home. That's what he's like. We give thanks to him. We look at him and we remind ourselves at the table God must be good if he would give us this to bring us home. So we look back at the cross. We look up to the Father in thanksgiving. And thirdly, we look in when we approach the table in faith. We look in. In reference to this meal, Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight that we must examine ourselves and then so eat the body and the blood of the Lord. What he means, Paul means, is that we must examine ourselves to see if faith is present within us. Since it is those of faith that take of this meal, we should look in to see if faith is present. Are we trusting? Are we fighting sin? Are we trusting in Christ to cover all of our sin? Jesus says in Matthew 5 that if we know our brother has something against us, go and reconcile to him and then come to the table. So in other words, the Lord's Supper table is sort of like a health check. Every time we offer it, it reminds us and makes sure that we're right with one another and right with God before we go and take it. I'll never forget that moment. It is etched in my memory when a sister, I was standing in line to go take the Lord's Supper. And our sister, a dear sister to me to this day, came up to me and confessed sin that she had in relation to me. And I, of course, forgave. She asked for my forgiveness. I asked for forgave her, and I gave her a hug. And then two of us walked up to that table, and we ate together. That's what the table does. It reminds us of the story of Christ and it reconciles us to one another. And don't forget, beloved, as you look in, you're not looking in to see if you are worthy to go to the table. None of us are worthy to go to that table. No one is worthy. The question is, are you trusting the only one that is worthy to give you a place at that table? That's what you're looking for. Not looking to see if you are worthy. You're asking, are you trusting the one that is? And then you go and you eat and you drink trusting him together. So you look back, you look up, you look in, and then forth, you look forward. 
Again, Jesus says he won't eat of this meal until all is fulfilled in the consummated kingdom of God. He says this three times. Verse 16, verse 18, and again in verse 30. Where he refers, notice the word, by the way, it's his table and his kingdom. So listen, one little point of correction, I think we often, at least those of us that grew up in the church, the church I grew up in, I think some of us can be like this. This meal, friend, is not supposed to be so incredibly somber. It's not meant, in other words, to make you feel bad. Remember, you look back to the cross. That gives you confidence to approach the table and to look forward to your home in heaven with him. The Lord's Supper is meant to orient us towards our heavenly home, to where our citizenship lies. We get excited about that, don't we? Remember last week when Jesus says, stay awake. Don't let the return of Christ surprise you. Well, listen, this meal helps keep us awake. Which is why, by the way, if you're not taking the meal, the Lord's Supper regularly, you place yourself in a dangerous position. We need this meal to recalibrate us towards the new Jerusalem. Because we are in the wilderness now and we need this meal to remind us a day is going to come when we're going to be home with him in heaven. We look back, we look up, we look in, we look forward and finally we look around. We look around. As I mentioned, the Lord's Supper is meant for the vessel Jesus is using to build his kingdom, the church. When we look around and see the others taking the meal, that is meant to remind us of the people that we are responsible for to get us home into the new Jerusalem. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, 17, that there is one bread and we who are many are one body for we all partake of the one bread. This is so important to think about. There is one head of the church, Christ. And there is one body of Christ, the church. And the ones that have bound themselves together here at Restoration Church through membership. We are membership. We are members of that body. That's where we get that language from. Membership. It comes from 1 Corinthians 12. We've identified by grace through faith and through those practices that we set up here to fight, figure out where's the body at. And those that come to take the meal through membership. We can see them. And as Christ has covenanted with us, we have covenanted with one another to help define where God's body, where Jesus' body is. And to then help us orient us to know where they are so as to help each other on towards home. And so for that reason and all these other reasons, this meal is critical. It is critically important to, the, to our life together as a church. This meal reminds us of who God is. This meal reminds us of who we are. And whose we are. This meal reminds us of where we're going. And it reminds us for who we are responsible for when we go. As we go. We need this meal if we're going to make it on towards heaven. Because this meal reminds us of the fact that Christ gave us himself to get us home. And so may we eat and drink in remembrance and anticipation of Jesus our Lord, our Savior, our home, our Passover lamb. May we remember that meal of the new covenant in these five directions in which to look. And as we eat and drink, may we also be reminded of the posture that we are to have as a new covenant community. The posture. You can read that there in verses 25 and 26. The kings of nations, he says, lord over their leadership in such a way as to be called benefactors. In other words, 
They want possession positions. Why do they want the positions? So that they can get, they can be benefited. Scribes, Pharisees, Judas, they want the world to serve them. And many leaders, beloved, do the same exact thing. They do it in politics. And they do it in the church. And Jesus says to the new covenant people, that's not us. We don't do that. Let the greatest among you become the youngest or the least. And the leader as one who serves. Jesus goes on to say, that's what I am. I'm one that serves. Remember in the meal, he reminds them, I was the waiter. You were the customer. Remember in the Lord's Supper, I was the waiter. You was the customer. I'm the one that gave thanks. I'm the one that broke. I'm the one that gave you the bread. I'm the one that gave you the wine. And I am the son of man. And so as Christ has saved us by serving us in the cross and in the resurrection, so may we serve one another and the world around us as he did, as servant leaders. That's our posture. We're not looking to get all the time. We're looking to give. He said just before this meal in John's gospel, Jesus says just before in John 13, right before this meal, he says, a new command I give you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Guys, this is the calling card of the church. We are feet washers. We are waiters, not customers. Our posture is love. And love most certainly loves people enough to tell them the truth, serve them with the truth, even if they don't want to hear it. Love serves. Love doesn't seek to always be served. It seeks to serve. And Restoration Church, I thank God for the many ways in which you do this. But listen, the division is running rampant in our nation. You heard Joey pray for it a moment ago. And as the elections likely will spin us even into more division and more vitriol, as our country uh, finds more of this pandemic intensified, as nation rises against nation, as tribe rises against tribe, may we at this church be found thinking of others as better than ourselves. May we be the one community in this city that transcends the chaos and we find ourselves loving and serving others in the love of Christ. Not attacking each other. And we do that, beloved, going back to how we began this sermon. We do that. We serve each other by not going away from Jesus and away from his people, but towards Jesus and towards his people in love. Being oriented to him and that new covenant. And as we are oriented to him and we are oriented to each other, that posture of love, that service of the gospel of grace, we then become that beautiful community, that countercultural beautiful community as light in a place of darkness. And soon enough, beloved, this meal will no longer be a symbol, but we will finally be home. And we will sit at that table with him. And all of the difficulties of these days in which we gave ourselves to him and his people, we will be glad and said we are thankful that we did that. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for the supper.
We lament the many Judases in the world. All of us know. All of us can put names of Judases. We lament those realities. And we pray, God, that we would be found as those people that don't go away from you, but come to you. And they come to your people. And we are reminded that you, Jesus, gave your body and your blood for us. And you handed it to us. And Lord, we look forward to the day when this pandemic is over and we don't have to take all of these precautions and we could take the Lord's Supper together. Thank you for the body. Thank you for the blood. Thank you for your love, Jesus. Thank you that you first loved us. That's what we needed. And we thank you that you've done it. You've finished it. The work is done. We await the final chapter. And as we, Father, turn here in just a moment to baptism, Lord, for those of us that have been baptized, may we be reminded of our own baptism and the ways in which you brought us home and gave us a place at that table. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.